Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14. This is the word of God. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this wonderful word about your son, Jesus. Father, we're thankful for our time this morning. Help our, the eyes of our hearts to be able to see just how superior Jesus really is to all of the things in our life, certainly as we look at angels this morning. But uh, in all of our life, Father, help us to see just how wonderful your son is. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, as you know, we started our, our series in Hebrews. Uh, we went through verses 1 through 4, which is really kind of the Mount Everest of theology, highlighting the deity, the majesty, the wonder, the sovereignty of Jesus. Our sermon was titled, None Like Him, because indeed there is no one on earth or under the earth or above the earth who is like Jesus. We are continuing that theme this morning in verses 5 through 14, as you just heard read. Thank you, Melissa. We are going to see that Jesus is superior to the angels. In fact, this is really just a continuation of what we learned last week in verses 3 and 4. But before we get into the scripture this morning, I, I want to zoom out uh, from today's passage and just look at the whole book of Hebrews for a moment. When we do that, we see that Jesus is superior not only to the angels, but also to Moses and to the priesthood and to the sacrificial system. And the point is this. Do not return to what is old and inferior, but instead hold fast to the, your faith in Christ. Because in Him, and not the old covenant, is the superior revelation of God. But today, we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at Jesus and the angels, and how Jesus is superior to the angels. Now listen, angels have captured the imagination of people from time immemorial. So before we get into our passage today, I just think it would be helpful for us to kind of level set on angels, what they are, what they are not. So first of all, the angels are created 
beings. They're not from the before time. They're not eternal as God is. They're created like us. They're subject to God's authority like us. They are not omnipotent. They are not God. They don't know all things, and so that way they're also like us. Now, one way in which they are different is that they are spirit beings. Now, primarily, primarily spirit beings, whereas we are primarily physical beings with a spirit. Now, one thing that's also different about the angels is that they always obey God immediately. There's no questioning. There's no hesitation. There's no sin, at least in the angels that did not fall with Lucifer. They are God's messengers. Both the Hebrew and Greek word for angel means messenger. I mean, just think of Gabriel coming to Mary. He brought a message. They are also ministering spirits sent by God to help his people. They are his warriors sent to do battle against both physical and spiritual enemies. You think of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings 6. They're surrounded by the Syrian armies, and Elisha's servant is freaking out. What are we going to do? Elisha prays, Father, open his eyes. And the servant's eyes are open. He's able to see that they are surrounded by a host of angelic warriors. They are God's worshipers. They are the ones around God's throne who continually proclaim that God is holy, holy, holy. And lastly, I have to address, I think, a common misconception. And do we have, and that is misconception, is just do we have a guardian angel? Does each one of us have a guardian angel? Well, if you would, just for a moment, skip ahead with me to verse 14, and we'll see that the angels there, when we, see, we read that verse, let me just read it for you briefly. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we see that they're there to, to serve and minister to God's people. Matthew 18.10 actually says something similar. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The angels are always watching God and waiting for his command to go and look after his people. But this doesn't mean that we, each one of us has a, a guardian angel. Nowhere does the Bible actually speak of this concept. But we do know from these verses that God has directed his angels to look out for his people. Now, I also thought it would be helpful. I've got a few slides here. I thought it would be helpful to see how people have visualized angels um, through art. So if we have the slide, there we go. Well, this is a, a picture from Father Angelico 600 years ago. And he painted many angels in, in his different paintings. And you can see they appear very holy. They've got halos. They've got shining garments. The, the pictures almost look like they're gilded. And you might say they're quite angelic. Um, if we go to the next slide, we see uh, Raphael's angels. Now, this is a picture I know that's familiar to many of you. This is actually in the Sistine Chapel. It was painted in the early 16th century, 500 years ago. Um, I think this painting is where we get the idea that a cherub, which is a type of angel, looks like a baby. The problem is I have a hard time, if you recall, the, the two angels whose wings touch atop the Ark of the Covenant are also cherubs. I have a hard time imagining that those two 
Angels forged from gold look like chubby babies. Many 19th century depictions of angels, if we go to the next slide, many 19th century depictions of angels are typical of what we see here from French painter William Adolphe Bougereau. Mostly, if not all of them are women, and if there are men, they're soft and effeminate. And it's, it's not hard to imagine that Jesus is superior to these depictions of angels, is it not? It's like, well, of course, Jesus is superior to these angels. But what if angels are much more powerful and awe-striking and awe-inspiring than what we've visualized here? I want to read a word picture from C.S. Lewis's Paralandra to you about at least what he thinks angels might look like. Suddenly, two human figures stood before him on the opposite side of the lake. They were perhaps 30 feet high. They were burning white, like white-hot iron. The outline of their bodies, when he looked at it steadily against the red landscape, seemed to be faintly, swiftly, faintly, swiftly undulating, as though the permanence of their shape, like that of waterfalls or flames, coexisted with a rushing movement of the matter it contained. For a fraction of an inch inward from this outline, the landscape was just visible through them. Beyond that, they were opaque. Whenever he looked straight at them, they appeared to be rushing directly towards him with enormous speed. And whenever his eyes took in their surroundings, he realized they were stationary. This may have been due in part to the fact that their long and, and sparkling hair stood out straight behind them as if in a great wind. But if there were a wind, it was not made of air, for no petal of the flowers was shaken. Their bodies, he said, were white, but, but a flush of diverse colors began about their shoulders and streamed up their necks and flickered over their face and head and stood out around the head like a plumage or a halo. Lewis's description might be a little over the top, but I'm inclined to think that this is closer to what the angels might look like than babies with wings or white-robed girly men of 19th century art. But why angels? Why does the author, and I might use the term as we go forward here today, preacher? Because I think what we see here in Hebrew is one of the reasons it feels and maybe looks a little different than some of the other epistles, is that in a lot of ways this is written as a sermon text, not as much a letter. So I'm going to call him the preacher. Why does the preacher start with angels? Why compare Jesus to angels? If angels are anything remotely like what C.S. Lewis pictured in Paralander, then it makes sense. But that, I think, only explains it in part. The fact that they are big and glorious and awe-inspiring probably isn't enough to cause the preacher to spend so much time on this point. What else could it be? Well, I think this is where good Bible interpretation requires us to understand what the original hearers heard when they heard this letter read, how they would have understood it. Now, you've got to understand that all Jews held angels in high regard as actually being a step above humans and just below God himself. There were even some Jews who held that the archangel Michael's authority rivaled or actually even surpassed that of the Messiah. And in fact, in the Messianic kingdom, that the archangel Michael would be the supreme figure. Now, we don't know if that's what these Jews in Rome were thinking, but it's possible I actually think a more plausible answer is that the preacher is setting up the difference 
between the difference in, uh, difference in superiority of the new covenant versus the old. You see, the old covenant, it was actually brought by angels. Acts 7 verse 53 says that the law was delivered by angels. And just a little later here in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2, we see the same where it says the message declared by the angels was proved to be reliable. So we have a covenant mediated by angels, the old covenant. Now we have a new covenant mediated by Jesus. But now Jesus has come and he has delivered and mediated this new covenant, which did away with the old. But you've got to put yourself in the shoes of one of these first century Jews. For a Jew who cherishes and loves the law, this is no small thing. They might be asking themselves, can't I just add Jesus to what I know and love? Does he really need to do away with who I am as a Jew? So then the contrast of angels to Jesus shows us that the new covenant in Jesus is better than the old covenant because Jesus, he is better than the angels. But just exactly how is Jesus better than the angels? Well, that's what the preacher is going to help us with. He actually gives us seven different Old Testament passages here, and I've kind of broken them up into the four points that you see in your outline there. And just one note before we get into our outline, for reference, the speaker in these passages is God the Father, and the recipient, the hearer of the words, is God the Son. I think that will help as we go forward. Well, let's look at point one in our outlines, the firstborn son, verses five and six. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The answers to these two questions is an obvious no. God never said to an angel that an angel is his son, or that he has begotten the angel, or that he would be a father to that angel. But to Jesus, he has said these things. Now the first reference is Psalm 2, which is what's called a messianic psalm. That is a type of psalm which looks forward, to, uh, looks forward to the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who would deliver and redeem God's people. The second reference is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where Nathan prophesies the word of God to David, proclaiming that he would always have a son who would reign over God's people. Now, while Solomon fulfilled some of that, we know that the promise of a forever king and a forever kingdom is only fulfilled in Jesus. So we see here that Jesus is better than the angels because he is God's son. God made the angels, but he did not make Jesus. The Father and the Son, and the Spirit for that matter, have always existed. They are eternal. Now, I think some of you are sitting here going, okay, I got that. I know that. I think the sonship of Jesus to the Father is something that many of us kind of take for granted. I mean, think about what's, what's maybe the first verse for you, the, for you that have attended church since you were very little. What's the first verse that you memorized? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John three sixteen. right? We just take these things for granted. And when Jesus came up from his baptism... God said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And at his transfiguration, Peter, James, and John heard the father say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I mean, this has been a settled matter for the church for 1,700 years. But it wasn't always this way. Controversy around Jesus' deity and sonship is the source of 
of much heresy. If you go back to the 4th century, a man named Arius put forward that Jesus was created by God and that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. Arius wrote, The sun has a beginning, but God is without a beginning. To Arius, Jesus was a lesser God to God the Father. Well, this caused significant problems in the church and, and in Constantine's empire. Why? Why would that be a problem? Well, Constantine wanted peace, and there were two warring factions within the church. But more importantly, the whole of Scripture and the gospel is at stake over the deity of Jesus. If Jesus is not fully God and of the same essence, the same substance as God, then his sacrifice on the cross for sinners, it might not be enough. It might not be sufficient to satisfy God's wrath against sin. That's how important this doctrine is. Well, so in response, Constantine called about 300 church leaders together in Nicaea, including Arius. And this is funny to me. I actually got this uh, from Bruce Shelley's wonderful The Church History in Plain Language. I highly recommend it to you. He was actually a professor at Denver Seminary for many years before he passed in 2010. This is what Bruce Shelley said about this, that he basically, Constantine had all these church leaders get together, put them in a room in Nicaea and said, I don't care what you decide, just figure it out. I need peace in my kingdom. So they quickly put down Arius' heresy, and as a result, put forward the Nicene Creed, which reads in part, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Sometimes we might be hesitant. I think in our, um, in our culture, in our American culture, Western churches in particular, we might be hesitant to cite or study or memorize creeds and confessions. I mean, after all, creeds and confessions are only the words of men and do not have the same authority as Scripture. But they can be helpful to bring, bring together and clarify what Scripture says. So my thought is this. If a creed has stood the test of time, like the Nicene Creed, or the Apostles' Creed, or, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, we do ourselves a disservice if we aren't familiar with them. As texts subordinate to the Scriptures, they have helped many believers both avoid and spot heresy. So in this case, the Nicene Creed was instrumental in clarifying what the church of God believed about Jesus. It took what Scripture says about him here in Hebrews, and especially in John 1, and clarified the church's belief. And in John 1, 1, we read in verse 1 that Jesus is the Word who was with God and who was and, who, and is God. And later in verse 14 of that same chapter, John chapter, we won, uh, John chapter 1, we read that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And there in verse 14 of that chapter of, of, chapter, of John chapter 1, Jesus is called the only Son. He is one of a kind, the singular one of which there is no other. And His unique position, when you hear the word begot, begotten, 
I want you to think unique relationship. He is the only begotten Son. He has this unique position such that he is the sole representative of the being and character of God. So in that way, he certainly is superior to angels. Now let's look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Here we, we see that Jesus is the firstborn, which all of God's angels worship. Now, firstborn, of course, doesn't mean he was the firstborn of all humanity. But it refers to Jesus' unique position as the heir of all of God's inheritance. He is of the highest rank. He is preeminent over all things. He is the firstborn. All preeminence and honor and dignity is due him because he is the firstborn. And as the first one, as the one who is firstborn, and the one who is preeminent and worthy of worship, it's even the angels, as glorious and powerful as they are, they worship him. This is the contrast that our preacher is setting up for us. Now, the firstborn is always the heir. In fact, in verse 4, last week, we read, and I'll read it for you now, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus has inherited God's name. Commentator uh, Richard Phillips, I think, has some very helpful ideas and thoughts here. I'm going to borrow heavily from him for these uh, next few thoughts about the significance of Jesus inheriting God's name. So I think it's helpful. When we think about inheritance, we always think about money, right, or possessions being passed down from one generation to the next. Now, the worthiness of the receiver is really kind of a secondary issue, right? We're not whether the person deserves all that they got, it doesn't really matter. In fact, sometimes the beneficiary of a great inheritance shares little of the qualities of the, of the one that allowed the, the benefit, benefactor to build up the wealth that they've now passed along. Paris Hilton, I can't believe I'm saying that name. Paris Hilton of early 2000s fame is a good example. She's famous for being famous. She is an heiress of the Hilton Hotel family wealth. I don't know her, but it wouldn't appear at first glance at least that she has the qualifications to run a multi-billion dollar business. She's still going to inherit all of that when it comes down to her. But in Bible times, but in Bible times, when a son came of age, if he was approved by his father, he would be received and bestowed with his father's name. So there was an approval piece that had to take place. It wasn't just a birthright. And this is what we see in Jesus' resurrection. It's actually very interesting. God giving final approval of his life and work and bestowing upon him the name Son of God. James Boyce said it like this, the resurrection is God's seal, it's his seal, on Christ's claim to divinity. Jesus was, in quoting from Romans chapter 1, verse 4, designated Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is the one and only Son of God, the firstborn heir approved and accepted by God to receive the fullness of his name. 
to be the exact imprint of his nature. Deity and flesh. His superiority and the superiority of the gospel start with the fact that he, that Jesus is indeed God and that he is the Son of God, God of God, light of light, and is worthy of our worship and adoration above all else. Not only does the firstborn sonship place him above the angels, his rule as the sovereign king does as well. Read with me point two in your outlines then, the, the sovereign king, and we have to send in our outlines sometimes before we like to. If I could have a redo, I'd call this the forever king. So if you have a pen and you're taking notes, cross out sovereign, write in forever. The forever king. This is verses 7 through 9 from our passage this morning. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, we see two more quotations from the Old Testament. The first in verse 7 is from Psalm 104.4. And the second in verses 8 and 9 is from Psalm 45, 6 and 7. So the preacher starts by showing that the angels are servants, created by God to do his bidding. God makes, he decides, he directs his angels to be winds and flames of fire. I I think maybe C.S. Lewis had this passage in mind when he put pen to paper for for Paralandra. The angels go forth as God's servants, but it is the sovereign King Jesus who sends them. He has a throne that is forever and ever, a throne which angels surround and shout, Holy, Holy, Holy. Now, the Marines who serve at the White House are an impressive bunch of men and women. The work they do uh, to, to keep their uniforms looking as good as they do, I can tell you it does take a lot of work. Standing at attention or at parade rest for hours is both impressive and incredibly taxing. No emotion, no smiling, just duty. I would imagine the process to be selected for that duty is rigorous and highly selective. They aren't going to accept, accept the average Marine for this job. The thing is, is, as impressive as those Marines are, you would never confuse them for the president. It's the same way here. Being sent forth as winds and flames of fire, it's impressive, it's awe-inspiring, but it's not as impressive as the one who sent them. Now, Psalm 45, from which verses 8 and 9 are quoted, is actually a wedding psalm, interestingly enough. Kind of funny where we find these messianic references. In verses 1 through 5, we see of Psalm 45, we see the bride extol the bridegroom's attributes. She says that he is handsome, he has splendor and majesty, that he's a mighty warrior fighting for, for meekness and truth and righteousness. But then in verses 6 and 7, she can no longer be contained. To mortal descriptors, 
and bursts forth in, in praise at her groom king. She says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. But her praise, as we know, can't be fulfilled by any human king. Only an eternal and sovereign king could fulfill a forever and ever throne. On the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that he is, in fact, this sovereign forever king. So Jesus is superior to the angels because the angels are servants and Jesus is the sovereign. We also know that Jesus is superior because he is the unchanging creator. Let's look at point three in your outlines. The unchanging creator, verses 10 through 12 in our passage this morning. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, robe you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, God's attributes can generally be split up between his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. So his communicable attributes are those that he shares with us, like love and patience and goodness. We're not perfect in these things, but we share these attributes with God. His incommunicable attributes are those he doesn't share with us, like his glory, his holiness, his perfection. We don't have any of those things. One of his incommunicable attributes is his immutability, or said another way, his unchangeableness. Much of our faith rests upon the fact that God is unchanging. And that's what we see here in verses 10 through 12. Jesus was there in the beginning, laying the foundation of the earth, right? The heavens are the works of his hands, making everything. But all of his creation will perish, but he will remain. All of creation will be rolled up and tossed in the dirty clothes basket, but he will be the same without end. He is superior to angels because he is the unchanging creator. Now, verses 10 through 12 are taken from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And if we back out of those three verses in that psalm, and we look at Psalm 102 as a totality, it's actually a lament. Yet again, an interesting place to find a messianic reference. A wedding psalm and now a lament. And the first 11 verses of Psalm 102 are absolutely full of despair. Here's what the psalmist writes. My days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Things would have to be pretty bad for me to forget to eat. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. My enemies taunt me and they use my name for a curse. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. You have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. They're long, but dissipating. I wither away like grass. This man's life sounds like it is near the end. Days pass away like smoke. Bones are burned. Hearts wither like grass. 
But then he reminds himself in verse 12 of Psalm 102. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And he goes on to say that God will have pity and favor on Zion, that the nations will fear his name, that God will build up Zion, and that it regards the prayer of the destitute, nor does he despise their prayer. So let's look again at Psalm 102. Who do you think of? This destitute man, a man broken, struck down, stricken, taunted, drinking his own tears, lifted up and thrown down, withering like grass. Is this not our Savior Jesus crying out to the Father leading up to and at his crucifixion? But then we see the Father reply to Jesus in verse 12. You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. And then in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Everything we know. Changes. That's what we know as human beings. We know change. Our bodies change. When we're younger, that's exciting and good. When we're older, not as much. It becomes a lament. We change our minds. Our feelings change. The weather changes. Just yesterday, driving home from Keystone... In a matter of 15 minutes, it went from sunny and bright blue skies to a snowstorm back to sunny again. The weather changes. The landscape changes. Trees, leaves. Even like the stuff that we make as human beings behind our home was a horse farm. It had been a horse farm for who knows how long, probably as long as people lived out here in, in, in Colorado. Three years ago, it was sold to a developer, and now they're putting up houses on it. Things change. They don't stay the same. The world changes. Powers and governments. We just saw the transition of power, the peaceful transition of power in our country. Our situation changes. Money, success, family. We lose loved ones. Somebody that we pray dearly for doesn't accept the Lord as Savior. But here's the thing, God does not change. Even when we sin, even when we do the things, we think the things, we prioritize the things that we know that we shouldn't, his love for us does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In a world where everything changes, knowing that Jesus doesn't change is a great comfort emotionally. But it's not only that. One of the things that Tim Keller says in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, is before you get to that place and find your pl yourself in a place of pain and suffering, you need to have a solid foundation of theology upon which to fall back on. Things that you know are true. You may not feel that they are true in that darkest hour. 
But just like we learned in Habakkuk a couple of weeks ago, just because things are dark, the things that were true in the light don't change. They're still the same, and God is the same way. And here's how it's super critical for our theology and the foundations of the gospel itself, the fact that Jesus doesn't change. If you have your scriptures open, I would ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses 23 through 25. <clears throat> These are the kind of things that we need to know and hold on to, hold fast. Listen to what the preacher says in chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, always lives to make intercession for them. We have a great God and Savior in Jesus Christ who always lives to make intercession for us. We must know this and cling to it in our darkest hour. He is with us. Richard Phillips writes, Though all is lost in this life, though hardship and even death await, though the worst calamity may bring destruction, the man who trusts the Lord sees him in his eternal reign of power, his unchanging and unchangeable character, and there he finds hope. For as God said in Isaiah 51, 6, the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Despite all we may lose in this life, through faith in God, we receive a salvation that is eternal and secure. Be comforted and know that Jesus will never leave you because he will never change. But also hold fast, knowing that his unchangeableness means that he will save you to the uttermost. No angel, no angel can promise that. Jesus is superior to angels as the unchanging creator. And finally, he is superior to angels because he is the exalted Lord. This is point four in your outlines, and let's look at verse 13. We've already covered verse 14. Into which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The author concludes his case that Jesus is superior to the angels by reminding us of something he's already stated. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And remember, we learned this last week, his sitting down serves as an indication that his mission is accomplished. The work is done. He has done the work of redemption of God's elect people. But quoting from Psalm 110.1, the preacher adds that God will make Jesus' enemies a footstool at his feet. Now, in ancient times, a defeated enemy would prostrate himself at the winning king's feet, and the winning king would actually place his foot 
upon the neck of the loser. This is what Joshua did to the kings he and his men defeated. I mean, honestly, what an emphatic way to say, you are defeated and as good as dead. I own you. So who are the enemies that God will make a footstool for Jesus? Who is Jesus going to put his foot on the neck of? Well, the first is death. He's already done that. But also Satan and his demons. What about the curse of the law? Sin and shame. What about false teachers and those who lift their fists to him in rebellion? All will be placed at Jesus' feet in submission and defeat. One of my favorite verses is actually from Philippians chapter 2. It's verses 9 through 11. It speaks to Jesus' exaltation as the conquering king. Just listen to these verses. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No angel is capable of this. No covenant that an angel has mediated, not even the covenant of the law delivered to Moses that that the Jews built their world upon is better than a covenant of grace mediated by the firstborn Son of God who is the sovereign, forever king, the unchangeable creator and the exalted Lord over all of his enemies. So as we wrap up this morning, if you may recall, earlier I, I tried to relate what it must have been like to be a Jew who was now following Jesus. I said, they might have been asking themselves, can I just add Jesus to what I know and love? Does he really need to do away with all of these things that I've identified with for my entire life? We need to ask ourselves the same questions. Are we adding Jesus to our lives? Or is he our only hope and salvation? I know and understand that Jesus is better, and I believe that he is better. But am I trusting and living in a way that reflects what I know and believe? Or have I just simply added him to my life? In the Hebrews' day, the religion was very external. Right? Think about the things that they did. Temple worship, strict observation of the Sabbath, tithing, washings, circumcision... It directed, it really, the way their religion directed much of their day-to-day -day life. And it really fed a lot of their identity. I think that actually might be hard for us to understand. You see, we live in an age where identity is defined by how we feel. Even if you think that's not true of you, trust me, it is. We've all been grown up in this. But back then, one's identity was defined outside of yourself. But in our times, identity is largely defined by how we feel. I am how I feel. In times like these, it might be harder, it might be harder to spot when we are adding Jesus to our identity instead of finding our identity in him. But this is indeed the high calling into which you have been called, believers sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
Now, if you don't know Jesus like this, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, first I would just ask you to come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to have a conversation with you about this. But you have an opportunity today to think of Jesus and to proclaim him as your Lord, to know how much he loves you, that he's laid your, his life down for you, and that by confessing your sin and believing on him, and not just with your head, not just as assenting, yes, this is true, and I believe that it's true, but actually trusting, you can begin a walk with Jesus. I can guarantee you that no one in this room, especially young people in here this morning, no one in this room has completely gotten past just adding Jesus. We're all still working on this. That's what it means to walk with God. And that's why it's so wonderful to know his forgiveness. Because we do mess up. It's not about being perfect. It's not about making yourself right before you come to him. It's about confessing your need and coming and saying, Jesus, I need you. And Jesus, who is superior to angels, is worth it. And the reward, we don't talk about this much, but there is a reward. The reward is worth it as well. Verse 9 of our text today, God says to Jesus that he has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Well, who are the companions? We are his companions. The kingdom is Jesus's. He has inherited God's name and received his kingdom. But as his saved ones, we enjoy the blessing of that kingdom as well. Isaiah 61, 3. I just want to close with this. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. Speaking of those who are come to Jesus, confess their sin and confess their need for him and put their whole lives in his hands. This is what he says. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Sometimes we say beauty for ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. That his name may be hallowed. Do you want to be an oak of righteousness for the Lord? Do you want to see his name hallowed? Give yourself to Jesus. Please stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son is superior to all of the things that we mentioned. We looked at angels this morning. And Lord, he's so worthy of all of our adoration and praise. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy, really, Father, of all of our devotion. He's worthy of the honesty of our hearts. That we would confess to him our sin, we would come to him and rest in him. Lord, enjoying his blessing and being his companion. Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel this morning, and we thank you for this wonderful Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.